Welcome to the Azure Podcast, a weekly podcast to keep you up to date on what's new on our cloud platform, Microsoft Azure. Your hosts, Cynthia Crane, Evan Basilic, Suji DeMello, Kenno Roden, Kel Teeter, and Russell Young discuss a different service or solution on each show with subject matter experts to explain how to get started, how different services work, and how to make decisions in tricky scenarios. You can find out more about our podcast at azpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Azure Podcast. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Azure Podcast. Uh, this is episode number 442. Um, th- we're going to be talking about uh, sort of IP services in general in Azure um, with our special guest, Brian Lair. Um, and before we get to Brian, um, Sajit, um, it looks like we've got some news today. Actually, we've got lots of news. I don't know that we're going to get to all of it today for sure, because all the Ignite stuff hit right. literally right before this. We're recording this episode on the 12th. Um, but what do you want to highlight? Yeah, and we should mention, uh, Evan, that uh, Ignite, uh, as you said, starts today. Uh, of course, by the time this episode uh, is published, uh, Ignite may be over, but uh, we'll put a link to all of the recordings. Of course, everything in Ignite, uh, you could come in and see it. So we'll definitely put a record, uh, link to that. But uh, I have uh, picked up a few that uh, I thought were very interesting uh, from today's announcement in Ignite. One of them is the Azure Resource Topology Service. It's a new service that's being announced. And typically, uh, we use uh, Network Watcher uh, that has a facility where it can create like a topology, uh, but it's very limited to a specific region and also to a, subs- a, sub- a subscription. And obviously, uh, applications today will span regions, span subscriptions, and you can't get that holistic view of the application. So this Azure resource topology now gives you that holistic view across regions, across uh, subscriptions, at the same time letting you drill down all the way to to, to look inside a subnet, right? So it gives you that nice uh, all-up view as well as uh, drilling down. So that's one feature that I thought was pretty neat. Another one which completely, uh, you know, uh, took me uh, by surprise is uh, this new Cosmos DB uh, innovation. So, you know, Cosmos DB has always been seen as a NoSQL sort of database. Well, uh, they have now started supporting relational databases as well. So imagine now this one database the service supports both NoSQL as well as SQL style or relational style uh, database access. And the way they've done it is to put, um, you know, in the past they've had uh, uh, the MongoDB had, I think the Cassandra had, and other other kind of uh, Well, there's a T-SQL endpoint as well, yeah. which is relational at that point. Yeah. E- exactly, yeah. And now they've put PostgreSQL on top as well, right? So, uh, so now, you know, using this one very highly available database service, uh, you have a choice of uh, how you want to access it. So, uh, so that's the, another feature, uh, another um, enhancement that came out today. And the third one, which I really liked, is virtual machine scale sets now support uh, spot VMs, right? So you can imagine you you, you create a, a VMSS, uh, and oh, let's say nice. you, as you as you scale it up, you say, hey, you know, when, when we, you know, uh, maybe I'll I'll use a blend of you know normal VMs and spot VMs to save some money because in case you know, scales up to a large amount. I don't want to be hit with a gigantic bill. Uh, you could say, you know, help me with some of those costs by using spot VMs as you scale up, for example. So I think that I thought that was uh, really cool and innovative. Yeah, no, that is, it, it sort of gives you the ability to balance performance versus cost, right, with, with the flexibility. Yep. Um, yeah, no, that's great. Um, yeah, the couple that I wanted to highlight um, and, and just 
sort of to the first couple sort of show my 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 world where things are always broken. Um, but you know, backup and restore updates for app services v2 and v3, right? So this allows you to actually back up the entire app, the configuration, because you know nobody ever deletes those or accidentally changes any of that, right? So so that's a, a new capability. Um, and then the other one, this is sort of on that same cost line, which I thought this was a like it, it's sort of a no-brainer feature. I, I know there's a ton of intelligence underneath it, um, but this is for Azure Backup. We have smart tiering for your back it, backing it up to the archive, the archive, the archive, right? So you know you have these backups that are spanning over, let's say you've got it over six months, right? Your really old ones, maybe you just put them in archive, right? A cheaper storage you know, mechanism, because you're not likely to go back to those versus, you know, one week, two weeks, you know, a month, you want those, you want to pay for those to be sort of faster and more highly accessible or faster accessible. Instead of having to manage that and think through that yourself, you can let the platform actually decide for you based on your, you know, historical use and what's in there and the like. And I mean, I, I, you know, sort of stepping back a little bit, we talk about, you know, things like that, things like the automatic indexing that are built into SQL Azure, like all these things take away some of the grunt work really of of managing your services. Great to see these things show up capabilities wise. Just now you can focus on the business value right, for, your, yes. for your stuff. So, yep. um, cool. Well, great. Well, no. Um, so, so with that news roundup, let's, um, you know, transition over to Brian. Brian, if you could introduce yourself and let us know what it is you do here at Microsoft. Sure. Um, so my name is Brian Lear. I've been with Microsoft for quite a while, actually. I was on the wide a- wide area network, the WAN side, for okay. a good number of years that just you know helped to ensure the bits get from point A to point B um, and are traffic engineered in the best way. Uh, but in the last couple of years, I've been a product manager on the load balancer, NAT gateway, and public IP team. And my focus is the last one on that list, public IPs. Okay, great. So so what is, let, let's, you know, when, when you and I first started talking about this, um, you know, we were talking about there's a there's a ton of capabilities that you can use in Azure around, you know, IP addresses and public IPs. Let, let's sort of just start with the, you know, the base of piece you reference a public IP like this seems simple, but there's a there's a lot that goes around this at the end of the day. There is. Yeah. Um, I mean, so public IPs, fundamentally, Internet Protocol addresses, they're numerical labels. They serve as a way that um, you can uh, route traffic to a specific point on the Internet or within a private network. Um, And as you said, it's a fundamental component of Azure networking. It's hard to really do much without IPs. Uh, They're used by pretty much anything you can think of across the board, virtual machines, load balancers, firewalls, network gateways, so on and so forth. Sometimes Azure will maintain the IP address for the customer, but a lot of times uh, the customer just says, give me public IPs, and we actually give them a resource that sits in their subscription, um, like a public IP resource, and then they can you know, attach it to whatever they want to. So there's, we can go into lots of details about it, but yes, it is sort of a fundamental component without IPs, you really couldn't do any kind of Azure it's networking. A, it's hard to connect if you don't have an, if you don't have an endpoint, right? Yes. Endpoint. Yes. Yeah, so um, I have to ask. Oh, so Brian, I have to ask this question though. You know, when it comes to IPs, uh, we've all heard that the, the the IP addresses that we have right now are a precious resource, right? And you, you know, we're all supposed to use them as judiciously as we can. How how, how close to the edge are we in terms of you know IPv4 uh, addresses? Uh, like I, I hear all sorts of uh, you know, uh, mentions that we're going to run out any minute now and blah, blah, blah. And I always wonder, like, you know, uh, 
when should when should I start hitting the panic button on that? Um, well, I mean, how do I say this? Uh, for a a company as large as as Microsoft, you know, we can we can pay for IPs, right? And we do we do we do pay for IPs. Like we, we have to pay quite a lot for IPs, right? Uh, so to put it in context, right, you're talking about IPv4s, right? Uh, so uh, V4 addresses use uh, 32-bit numbers, right? So there's two to the power of 32, a number of IPv4 addresses, give or take. Uh, there's some nuance there, but that's about 4 billion-ish, right? Um, IPv6, which is kind of the, the new hip uh, way of doing V6, uh, doing uh, IP addresses, uses 128-bit numbers. So it's two to the power of 128, and I'm not even going to try to <laughs> what that is um but yeah uh v4 addresses are uh much more scarce um and uh they cost money because you have to go out in the auction block quite frankly and and, and get those ips so that's where we are just if, to answer your question we're at the point where uh there are auctions for ip addresses and you're paying i won't say the amount but you're paying quite a lot per ip address much more than you were 10 or 15 years ago. So they are scarce. Yes. So, so this, so it's so sort of the follow-up to that, um, you know, IPv6, which for the life of me, I still can't read or write them effectively. Personally, I suspect I'm probably not the only person with this problem. Um, you know, but, but, you know, Azure is, you know, to varying degrees, depending on the service and depending on the component, it is, you can, I can use IPv6, right? Is this something I should be looking at doing on a regular basis is this should this be my my default config what's your what's your guidance there i would say yeah definitely start looking at what we call dual stack configurations which have both v4 and v6 addresses on them um as you sort of intimated our our ipv6 story is a work in progress uh so we're working across the board to enable it for all our services so it essentially has parity with how we do for v4 uh, right now, uh, as I mentioned, everything has to be in uh, that dual stack configuration. So you also do have to have a V4 with a V6 address. One hurdle we uh, uh, just lowered for V6 is uh, when it comes to uh, public IPv4 and V6 addresses, uh, they're now, as of, I want to say, two, three months ago, absolutely free. So there's no cost uh, associated with adding IPs, uh, V6s, to, for say, uh, your VMs or your load balancers, uh, which are both products that do support dual stack configurations with V6. So kind of lower the barrier to entry there. But yes, I would say start start looking at that and, and seeing where you can integrate V6 into your uh, deployments. Do, do I need to tell my customers that I'm doing a V6 or, or will it just like... Like, will it just work for them? I mean, what what's sort of the onus on me as a, an application or a workload developer if I say, hey, I want to get on board this IPv6 train and, you know, beyond just, you know, checking the box somewhere and says, hey, use the dual stack. Do I need to tell somebody that I'm doing this or? Uh, um, well, it, it sort of depends how sort of if you want to direct customers to start using your V6 endpoints, you can. But okay. the good thing about dual stack is that it's sort of they exist together. They're, you know, they're in harmony. People can keep using V4, no problem. Uh, so in that sense, you don't have to. Uh, but yes, if you want to start directing people to to use V6, then you can say, now I have we are V6 capable, right? It's an augment okay. to what you have. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, okay. And Brian, what would be the incentive for our customers to say, okay, you know, I'm going to use the V6 uh, address, right? Because it's available here. Uh, is it uh, kind of the same thing on their end? They also are going to be suffering in some way to get IPv4s, and is that the main uh, kind of um, uh, incentive here? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's multiple reasons um, why customers would want to move to V6. And as I said, everything is dual stack. So what you're doing right now is you're kind of setting the foundation for a move to what Azure will eventually support, which is V6 only deployments. Um, but yeah, there there are reasons. I mean, everybody is suffering from the same sort of you know uh, V4 uh, address scarcity across the board um, in, in all cloud services for all on-prem deployments. Uh, in some cases, um, we've heard from uh, customers, uh, state entities, and so forth that have uh, V6 requirements, like uh, regulatory requirements, that everything needs to V6 by a certain date. So there's a lot of reasons, but yes, it all has to do with that scarcity. And so what we're trying to enable here with dual stack is kind of sort of you slow walk into it, you get used to having it coexist, and then eventually you can move to V6 only deployments. So, the, so you, you know, you talk about, um, you know, people have their IP address blocks, right? On, from, on, you know, from, they own them or, or, you know, they purchased them at, you know, non-trivial dollars at an auction, um, you know, but so let's say I have my range. Do I have, can I, do I have to use the range Microsoft gives me? Can I, can I bring my own IP addresses to my deployments? Like, let's say I'm, you know, the classic one would be I've had some, some on-premises application and I've got some public, you know, public IP endpoint that I want my customers, they've been going to in, you know, with DNS for 20 years. I don't necessarily want to lose that when I move to Azure. Can, can I make that migration? Can I bring that with me? I'm smiling because this is uh, out of everything I've I've done this year. This is probably the one I'm most excited about. I'm very pumped about this. Uh, so, in March of this year, we introduced the ability to uh, bring your own public IP ranges uh, to Azure. Um, so, as you mentioned, you know some customers will have IP ranges that they already own, uh, you know, from the market. Uh, mm -hmm. They have it in their on-prem deployments and. Um, for whatever reason, they don't want to just use the IP addresses that Azure gives them. And it could be that their IP um, ranges are what's called high reputation, so they're not put on spam lists. Mm -hmm. um, and they do a lot of egress from those IPs, so they need to make sure they don't get put on spam lists. Um, or potentially they have customers of their own that have allow listed those IPs in firewalls somewhere. And they don't want to have to go around. We were just talking about telling your customers moving to V6. It's, it's worse to say, hey, we were this one set of v4 addresses now we're another set of v4 addresses because we're in azure because that makes the cloud transition a lot harder for some customers mm -hmm. so it becomes a blocker for just actually coming to azure in the first place um so yeah now you can actually you know say i have a, a slash 24 and it has to be uh, a slash 24 which is 256 ipv4 addresses it has to be at least that large or the internet won't accept it so this is primarily an enterprise feature um, but you can create what's called a custom IP prefix resource with that range. We validate that you own it. You're authorizing us to advertise it. So the internet doesn't think that we're hijacking your right. range. Right. Uh, you go through a provisioning process and then we hand those IPs to you and you've got your slash 24 block and you can use IP from that block in much the same way you can as if we give you IPs. You can attach them to VMs, load balancers and so on. But, but I think the follow-up question would be one, like my Azure is going to only give these out to me, right? Because I I brought them. Like we're not. It's not. I'm handing my IPs no. over to Microsoft. Okay. And, yeah, and they don't the go second, to the general pool or anything yeah, like that. Exactly, no, they right, they still yeah. belong to you. And I should say, just as I mentioned, cost before that does also does not cost anything for you to bring okay. the IPs there because because we're not having to pay for them, right? You paid for the IPs. They still are oh, owned right. by we're you. Just advertising. Yeah. Okay. Right. And if anybody goes to, goes to check actually out on the database where you can see who owns such and such range, it will still say your name and your contact information, you being the customer. Ah, uh, okay, great. And and then the follow-up piece is is it can, you know, let's say I have this this, 
you know, high sort of high value from an allowless perspective IP address. Um, is there downtime to to move it from on-premises to Azure? Like that, because if I've got a production app, I I need to just not that I can't take downtime, but I need to be cautious about doing. Right. So, I mean, there is, I would say, a migration process. So I mentioned that, okay, so you provision your range. I have my slash 24. I put it in the East U.S. Azure region. Okay, Mm -hmm. I'm good to go. It's still being broadcast onto the Internet from the old on-prem site, right? Mm -hmm. And so without getting into all the details of BGP, uh, the Border Gateway Protocol, I'll just say that you don't want IP ranges to be broadcast uh, the same range Both, from multiple right. places at the same time because you know we'll get very confused. Um, so that the final step after you provision your range and you attach it to VMs and load balancers and firewalls and whatever you want the Azure infrastructure to look like, then you effectively hit a button. You you run what's called a commission command, and that starts the process to advertise your range from. Microsoft. It, okay. And it actually goes out and starts talking to our routers, and our routers start broadcasting your range onto the internet. So at that point, yes, you would take a, a migration. You probably want to do it during a like a maintenance window yep. on a weekend, yep. low traffic period, and it would kind of slowly turn off on your end and turn on on our end. Right. So, it, you know, there you try to make it as uh, unimpactful as possible, but, you know, we're talking about BGP here, so you have to be a little bit careful. It, it sounds a lot like sort of a DNS migration where conceptually it isn't super hard to do but there is some time window as dns is being sort of propagated out and vp is being propagated out that you know you might have this sort of this inconsistent advertisement you know across the global internet at that point okay so but again not something to freak out about but definitely something to be aware of yep okay so uh you know back on the uh on the deal stack that you were referring to earlier brian uh so as a you know, I'm a software engineer. You know, I build applications that run on Azure. Uh, I'm just trying to think, like, you know, what if anything I need to to take into account in my application. Let's say, you know, I am building an application because I know sometimes there are apps that will read, you know, the incoming IP address and you know, take maybe take some action on it or something like that. Uh, is there anything that uh, an application has to do to to react to this little stack? That's a that's a bigger question, I think, than than IP addresses. I mean, yes and no, but I think it's going to be very application dependent. So I want to make sure I answer your question correctly, um, <laughs> because individual addresses, yes, uh, yeah. I, I maybe I'm not I'm not able to understand your question uh, in a way that I can answer it properly. Like. Uh, um... You know, there there are often applications that will look at the inbound IP address and make some kind of maybe some calculations or judgments on that, right? Uh, I'm just thinking about those. Kind of, I, I know in the past I've written many applications where you know they'll 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 inspect the inbound ad, uh, address. Uh, maybe they use it for correlation or or, or whatever. Uh, but there but there's some things that they I mean, sometimes they will use it to generate maybe uh, like a like a session ID or, or you know whatever it is uh, that that ties it to that incoming uh, address, right? But now if that address is coming in through an IPv6 uh, interface, right? Uh, does that change the context in any way, uh, or does that I, not really matter when it eventually hits the Azure and, uh, application itself? Again, I, I would say it's very application dependent. Obviously, the way that the headers and, and everything are arranged in the IP address are going to be different, so your application has to be aware of that. Um, but you, I mean, 
everything that was in an IPv4 address that matters to the application should also be contained within a v6 address. So you can still get the same information out, out of there and direct it to a specific customer. Again, I'm sort of talking in generalities because it really is application by application dependent, but I would say you're definitely not missing any information. If anything, there's more there's more information contained within a, a v6 uh, address header uh, that you can do more stuff with. Um, I guess v6 specific, um, we've been talking about public IP addresses and there is private, of course, as well. It's a little different when it comes to v6. They have something called global unicast addresses, which are kind of their equivalent of public. And then there's things called link local addresses and unique local addresses. So in in that sense, there are some differences that aren't, it's not a complete one for one when it comes to v4 and v6. So I guess any application would need to be aware of that. But in general, I would hope that um, in most cases, it should work fundamentally the same way. Hopefully I answered that question. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm thinking about this, Sajid. This, this actually, my gut response to that is if you're writing an application that depends on a source IP for its behavior, IPv6 is going to make your life very interesting because potentially every source user or device would have its own yeah, yeah. IP. So, so maybe probably try not to do that would be yeah, the yeah. answer. <laughs> I mean, as Brian was saying, you know, you, we sometimes do inspect that inbound yeah. header, right? Yeah. The HTTP header that contains the IP address. And then you yeah. say, oh, I don't know, use it for something or the other. Uh, yeah. And I was just wondering, like, is there going to be a second header now, you know, saying, okay, here's the two IP addresses that we, you know, that represent this user or whatever. Yeah, uh, I, I can think the, 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 the email folks probably have thought this through, right? Because they use this in like the proxy server folks have probably thought through this as well because for them that source ip does matter right they could get a different behavior um at that point yeah i hadn't thought about that um makes me glad i'm not on the application programming side of things <laughs> um so the the other interesting and, and i can't remember if, if i heard this comment from one of the guests on the show or you know in an internal conversation but sort of switching gears a little bit when you look at the microsoft network we're functionally a shadow internet Right. It, it is the size and the scale of the Internet. There is a big chunk of the overall Internet traffic that is flowing sort of inside of our network, you know, different mm -hmm. sites here and there. The same is true for the other cloud providers, not saying we're necessarily different in, in that context. Um, you know, but can I how can I as a customer take advantage of that? Can I is there a way I can get my traffic to Microsoft sooner or how do I manage that? Well, actually, so, um, you know, talking about different flavors of IP. Um, we have something called a routing preference uh, that you can use with our standard SKU public IP. And most IPs by default are called routing preference Microsoft Global Network. That's a lot of words, but all it basically means is um, from a traffic engineering perspective, you're getting the best we can provide. And that means that um, uh, it's, I get to talk about this. Uh, there's something called hot potato and cold potato routing, yeah, right? Yeah. So what we normally do in Microsoft is called cold potato routing, um, where our customers enter into our network on whatever edge site on our wider network is closest to them. And then the traffic is carried across the series of tubes until our, our private internet effectively, until it gets to its destination, like an Azure region. And then the traffic egresses in much the same way through the wide area network and out in the edge closest to the customer. So we're trying to, by default, give you the best experience over our network. Because we think we know our our network best right, right. better and than anybody it, else yeah exactly and i mentioned at the top like i used to be very involved with traffic engineering on the wide area network and so we do the best we can to avoid congestion and get your packets mm -hmm. to our region as best as we can better than just the internet could do it yeah. right yep um but 
if you opt for an IP with routing preference internet, then we get to use the hot potato uh, <laughs> traffic engineering where our network hands it off as quickly as possible, doesn't want the potato. Um, so in that case, the tra traffic would travel uh, from the customer over the internet to the edge that is closest to the internal Microsoft destination. So again, to that, if they're trying to get to US East and they're, in, they're starting in Singapore, it's gonna go all the way over the internet until it gets to an edge that's basically next to US East, go into that Thank region. You, and then we hot potato out as soon as it's done whatever it needs to do, we toss the traffic back out to the internet and then it goes all the way over the internet to Singapore. Um, and the reason you might want this is because the egress uh, bandwidth costs are lower. And if you're, you know, uh, sending terabits worth of traffic, you know, per month, having it cost less is nice if it's not latency sensitive. So, so this is really about, I mean, I think it goes back to what I, what I mentioned earlier. We think we know our network best and we can sort of beat the uh, least common denominator of the internet, which is sort of a whole bunch of ISPs, ourselves included, just sort of all saying, hey, we think this is a good path. Follow yes. it. We say we know our network really well. We think we can optimize over that. But to your point, we're going to charge you a little bit for that sort of that that intelligence. But if you don't care, yeah, you know, just go to the default. So, so I think what I heard you say is the default is Microsoft Global Network. So that's the yes. the cold potato mechanism. So if you are, and so it sounds like the if you're a customer who has lots of traffic, you ought to be thinking about potentially changing that or at least evaluating that to see if that makes sense for you. But the average customer probably doesn't matter at the end of the day. Yeah. Just use the defaults. If you don't send that much traffic anyway, you're not getting charged to begin with because there's a sort of a, a first tier we have oh, where yeah. there's right. charge, right? And then you have to kind of work up to it. So if you're sending terabits worth of traffic, then it's something you probably want to look into. Okay. So, so, so what you just said is that cold potato is faster than hot potato. Is that what you just said? Yes, because hot potato, we're, we're mm. tossing it. We I don't, don't know. It doesn't we don't like go <laughs> well with me. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't come up with the term, but I just like using them. <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah. I, I have been in some conversations with those come up, and it, it, it's always fun when you get to bring them up. Um, yeah, yeah, no, th this is great, Brian. I appreciate you coming on. Any, I mean, we sort of talked about, across a wide range of stuff. We talked about public IPs, um, you know, IPv6, you know, routing preferences. Anything we didn't hit that you want to leave the audience with? Um, just one thing, and it's kind of a recent announcement. Um, I think it really went out in the last couple of weeks. Um, so we, we didn't talk too much about um, another different flavor of public IP addresses. When you get them from us, they can be either basic or standard SKU. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm I'm biased, but standards are a lot more useful because it supports things like Azure availability zones. It's secure by default, so you have to have a, a network security group in order to access it. And it's also required if you want to use most of the modern networking products like Azure Firewall, like NAT Gateway, Standard Load Balancer, all those types of things. You have to have what's called a standard SKU public IP address. Um, the uh, notification that went out in the past uh, couple of weeks was that um, BASIC is actually on a depreciation path. Um, no one needs to freak out because it's not being depreciated, retired until close to the end of 2025. So you've got okay. multiple years. Yeah. But if you have questions about how to upgrade your infrastructure, you know, feel free to uh, ask us and we'll try to uh, help you. We have some good documentation out there, but we're adding to it and finding good migration paths for all the different resource types that might have IPs attached to them. Because usually you don't have IPs just sitting around that aren't attached to things. Yeah. They're, they're right. being used. And what right. was the uh, rationale behind creating uh, the basic? Is that uh, those people were just defaulting to the standard IP or uh, 
we, we, we see more and more people move to standard, as I said, just because of the um, it's required functionality for a lot of the modern networking products. And a lot of the old basic stack is built on, you know, kind of, I'll say, legacy um, stuff on the back end. And we want to be able to better support, um, you know, the, the modern SKU uh, that all the products use. So that's yeah. kind of the rationale behind it. But, you know, it's a it's a long process. It's not happening tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, short, short story is, to G, is, is really the basic. And I forget what we called it. I think we just called it a public endpoint or a public IP previously. But the yeah. basic IP is the same thing we've had for years and years and years now. Um, you know, and I think to Brian's point, when when we sort of re-architected that whole stack, um, the standard IP is coming out. I, I'm actually pretty sure I think standard is the default um, when you go create one these days. So it, it is. It is default. Yeah. Yeah. So you generally shouldn't have to worry about it too much as a customer, it sounds like. But maybe if I've had some deployment that's been out there for years, um, I need to think about it. And you can even do the migration from a classic IP, like a, a reserved VIP, all yeah. the way to yeah, a, yeah. the basic and then all the way to a standard. So you can make quite a transition to go all the way to a modern SKU. Yeah, great. Awesome. No, that yeah, that's a good call because I, I had forgotten about that. That's actually, you know, to your point. It's not something to run out and, and you know take care of today. But you should definitely be thinking about it if you if you've still got some basic ones well, or even some classic <laughs> ones out. <laughs> we're, we're gonna have to look at our Azure podcast endpoint. I, 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 that was created on we, nine uh, years ago. So we are uh, Azure uh, podcast. There. <laughs> I I think we've talked about it on the show before. Judy. We are we are probably very much due some time spent on our infrastructure <laughs> at some point. <laughs> Um, yeah, we, we have so much fun doing the show and then this this admin stuff of maintaining the site, right? Just just becomes low priority. <laughs> okay, great. No, awesome. Brian, thanks for coming on. Um, appreciate it. Uh, uh, fantastic conversation. Um, Sajit, any last questions from you? No, thanks. Uh, thanks, Brian. Uh, is, is there anything in, in the in the Ignite uh, that, that, that we're announcing that uh, you haven't already talked about? Uh, no, though I can say back on the bring your own IP topic that in the coming weeks we'll, we will have, I only mentioned V4 in our discussion, oh, we're going to have the ability to do bring your own public IPv6 addresses as well. So that's something nice. exciting that's coming a little bit post-Ignite, but I can say that's coming soon. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Awesome. Thank Great. Thanks, y'all. Thank you for listening to the show. If you have any thoughts, questions, or just want to connect, find us on Twitter at Azure Podcast. Background music has been taken from ccmixer.org under the Creative Commons license. We hope you'll tune in again soon to keep learning with us.